thank you everyone for joining us and um uh, welcome welcome back it's been a month uh, it feels weird now we only do the monthly i miss craig terribly in, in that month <laughs> i must confess and, uh yeah it's episode episode 54 and um it's uh, our, our topic of discussion is research methods statistics but but before that makes you tune out it's for the clinician and Craig and I wanted to do an episode on this for some time, but we were a bit worried that it wasn't one that was going to be popular or well subscribed to. And we were pretty convinced when we decided we were just going to do it anyway, that, that Rod was the only real person that we, we, we wanted to come on and do it. Huge fans of his work. I don't know if anyone's seen his, his talks that he gives at Aspatar uh, out in Qatar uh, that, that then get put onto YouTube. But if you haven't after this, go, go and look for them because he does some brilliant talks there. And uh, Rod, thank you so much for, for joining us for this episode and um, and sharing our concerns that it would be a worrying topic to approach, but we think we can make it fun. We think we can make it applicable to to the, the clinicians. And that's kind of where I want to start in that there's a lot of people that aren't fans of research. And, and you could argue on the one hand that if you're a clinician, you don't you don't you shouldn't have that choice you've got to, you've got to get involved in it in some way you don't have to be an academic you don't have to be a researcher but if you're a clinician even if you'd refer to yourself as a coal-faced clinician you, you've got to get involved in in reading research at some stage in your life and actually even as a as a non-clinician just just having a better uh, understanding of how to read things and how to appraise things and, and things you could argue as a nation if we were better at doing that we we, you know, not just believing things that were told to us, we, we may we may live in a very different world. So, uh, I mean, I guess I want to start by asking you, why is it why is it important that everyone has a, a good baseline understanding of, of this stuff? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, and maybe if we kind of flip the question around for a second and figure out a case where it wouldn't matter, like no one needs to know it. And I reckon if your caper podiatry or my caper physio or whatever else if all the questions had been answered and basically we had this stuff cracked 50 years ago and we we knew the best treatments and the best outcomes and the best everything then there'd be no need to read the research but if you think that your profession is moving forwards and new things are coming out and you've got to try and sift the wheat from the chaff or find out what are the good things then you've got to know well what's rubbish and what's real and then the next one that usually comes up, again, when I have these same discussions, is, um, well, look, I, I'm not a researcher. You know, I'm just a clinician. I can't be expected to know that kind of stuff. And, yeah, I get that point. You know, you were trained and your whole job is doing your technical skills and all the rest of it. But the problem is it's, it's way easier to teach you as the clinician enough about statistics not to be a statistician but enough about statistics to be able to read your papers than it is to teach a statistician how to be a podiatrist or a physio or a whatever so the example we were just chatting about before and this actually happened uh, just a little while ago here um, you know one of the areas we look at a lot is training load and somebody had some training load data they shot it off to a statistician and the results came back were a bit queer and we just, uh, that doesn't seem right, but, you know, the numbers are the numbers. You know, do you mind if I just have a look at that? And there was a whole bunch of training load data that had been put in as zero. And, you know, this is for session RPE. And it's like, mate, you can't have zero. You can't go to training and have a zero value for your training. You have some amount of minutes and, you know, you at least say it was one out of 10. Well, and it turned out that, you know, just there was some missing data. It was entered as zero. The statistician said, oh, well, it must have been zero training. That's it. Away we shoot. 
he has no way of knowing that that's, that just can't happen in that field because he doesn't know training load stuff. And nor should he be expected to. Otherwise, he'd have to know surgery and radiology and all the other things he's expected to do. But you as the podiatrist or as the whoever would be able to not make those silly little mistakes. So if you know enough about the stats and you say, look, I've kind of had a look at it like this and I think that and I do that, you're already a long way ahead of the game. And then if you were to take it to a statistician and say, mate, here's what I think, tell me why I'm wrong, then you know, you're really going to get a long way ahead. So long answer to your short question, why do we really need to know about it? Well, if you think your profession is changing, you're going to have to know about stats to be able to know if your stuff is working and what stuff is right and what stuff isn't. And as things are going forward, it's gone to the days when we could say, look, I just do this because I know it works because governments and insurers and people like that are really starting to say, well, hang on a second, it's a market out there. We've only got this much cash. Should we be spending it on podiatrists or on massage or on aromatherapy on whatever the case may be? And we're going to all have to put up or shut up. And this is the only way for us to do it. Yeah, perfect. And and it's interesting, isn't it, that at some point in our life, we – we sort of abandon the scientific method a little bit. I, I, I've got two young kids and basically I watch them and every single day I watch them and I see that they, they're just thinking like scientists. They're questioning everything way yeah. too much. In my opinion, every <laughs> single thing around every single thing in life is an experiment to them. And one of, you know, one of them, regardless of his hypothesis, the way he tests it is it goes in his mouth and you just, you don't <laughs> want, you don't want to, you don't want to sort of quash that. And at some point, I don't know when it is or why we just we stop questioning things and we start believing what we're told and we yeah. believe the headlines or the whether it's a newspaper or a blog or an abstract uh, you know uh, and they all merge I, I guess uh, nowadays uh, we need to have these skills to like you say no are we going to adopt a new modality are we going to believe that barefoot running is the next, next best thing why do you think do you have any thoughts on on you know you surround yourself with with scientists and of all types why do you think we just that gets beaten out of us as we as we grow why why as kids are we so inquisitive and at what point do we just start being okay with accepting things and not questioning them yeah i guess i mean it's it's easier to take a shortcut sometimes like and you're a bit of a prick if you're constantly that guy who's no no that's wrong i don't (laughs) believe anything and you know, so I, I guess hey, that's great. That's that. Craig you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Australians generally, but Craig in particular. <laughs> no, I get, uh, and you know, it's 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 often just easier to oh look, it's all too hard. Just tell me the answer, you know. And that's one of our yeah. dramas with stats is, and maybe we'll get onto p values and things like that at some stage. But that was just look. This, this all seems difficult, you know, is it this, is it that? You're telling me on the one hand this, on the other. I just want a simple answer. Just tell me yes or no, this works or it doesn't work. Just just drill it down to that and that's all I want to know. And look, it's never like that. You know, you have to be able to get to the point where you can say, well, it's this versus it's that and that's why you've got to be able to read those different things. Hmm. Actually, yeah. Another actually, Ian, going back to your first question, another way to answer that is um, well, we don't have a choice. Our regulatory and licensing authorities tell us we have to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's, you know, you can argue it however they want, but you know, the, the, you, it's, but I, I, I guess at that point, people say, right, I better 
keep abreast of the research because I'm duty bound to and you know like CPD is mandatory and then they're keeping abreast of the research is is reading the last line of an abstract um, and I okay, yeah. you know that, that isn't the same thing is it looking at a paper and you know trying to get a feel for its strength its robustness again we'll come on to these things uh, in, mm. in just a second but they're, they're the skills that we seem to to either yearn or ignore and kind of go well they don't apply to me Let's kind of try and keep this as applicable as possible to uh, to clinicians, particularly. Um, so we pick up a paper, Rod. We decide, right, let's get stuck in. Whether we're an undergrad and we're currently studying, or we're postgrad, or whether we are returning to work after a layoff. Let's say someone would consider themselves rusty or novice-like in their ability to to read and appraise research. So they they decide they want to get into this, but they're nervous and they're worried. They pick up a paper. Have you got some, some sort of not, not shortcuts because we don't like that word, but some top tips? You know, where does your mind go first if you want a, a quick and dirty way of saying, right? How do I see if this paper's robust? Where, where should I look? What are my, what are my tips? Where, where do I start? What do you think about that? Well, let's get to the robust later because I reckon that's um, that's kind of step two. Uh, step one. Let me just share my screen here with you. Um, yep, we'll give you that one, and. This is kind of, if you want an algorithm or something, thing one is we've got to figure out how big is this effect. And that's, and usually if it's, you know, you're just looking at a cohort study. So they just took a bunch of people and they followed them over time or they did something and they said they were like this and they ended up like that. All right, well, how much did it change? Or we've got two treatment groups, you know, this treatment versus that treatment. Well, and they're saying that this one's better than that one. Well, how much better? And we'll get on to how you do that in a moment. But step one is you've got to be able to figure out how big is that effect. And then you have to express that in terms that matter to the patient, to you as the clinician, and to parents, coaches, governments, insurers, whatever the case may be. Whoever are the people you think, these are the people that matter, right? Is that actually a big effect? If that effect is small, stop there. Because it doesn't matter if it's a wonderful, robust study or whatever else. All you're going to be reading that paper for is to say this doesn't matter. And if it's terrible methods and it's a small effect, you still think it doesn't matter. If it's fantastic methods and it's a tiny effect, you still think it doesn't matter. So stop there. In the unlikely event that there's a huge effect, then you've got to say, well, hang on, how noisy is this thing that we measured? You know, just what happened there? And if we get a chance to have a look at that in a moment, we'll, we'll do that. And if it turns out that there's no noise in the measure and you've got a huge effect, mate, you could be onto something here. This one could be real. And then we'd go through all that other stuff you were saying. Is this robust? Is it in patients like my patients? Blah, 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 blah. Likewise, if there's loads of noise or you have no idea of knowing, is this a reliable measure? Is it a good measure or whatever the case may be? Now we're in that gray zone. I don't know if it's good. I don't know if it's bad. Rinse and repeat if it's a medium-sized effect. But just remember now your bar is going to have to be a little bit higher to figure stuff out. A medium-sized effect and it's a really noisy measure, eh, probably I'm not going to be paying too much attention to that one. Then you've got to figure out as well, okay, we, we've said this is maybe a big effect. What else do we know about it? Um, what's the up and downside of doing this particular thing? You know, is this just giving somebody a pamphlet or five minutes of advice over the phone, that probably hasn't got a whole lot of downside, but maybe doing surgery, 
that does have a whole lot of downside. You probably want to be able to weigh that up. Who are these blokes who are doing, or people who are doing this thing? You know, are they trying to sell you something? You can't avoid that sort of stuff now. And is there any way, especially, is there some way I could realistically check this in my practice and trust what's going on? So they're saying it really helps if I put this kind of dressing on a wound. All right, well, you know, we're currently doing something similar to that. Maybe I'll do the same thing and see if I get similar kinds of results and then we'll have a little bit of a think about it and take it from there. So that'd kind of be my overview of, you know, what really matters with this stuff. Where would you go? Superb. Um, can you just, someone's just messaged me and said, what, what do you mean by noise? Can you just clarify what you mean by that, Rod? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so this gets wildly under-investigated, um, but it's it's actually really important. It used to be, like when I first started out, it was reliability trials got published all the time. And nowadays you can never get a reliability trial published, but they're actually really important. And the guts of a reliability trial is that you just do something, you do no intervention, and sorry, you, you take some measure, you do no intervention, and then you just measure it again. So um, what's an example? Your bathroom scales are possibly not the most reliable piece of equipment on the world. So you stand on them and it says you are, I don't know, 78 80, kilos? 81, 81, uh, 81. Uh, that's with the jersey <laughs> though. Right, so, it says you're, so it says you're 81 kilos, you get off, and it says you're 81.2 kilos, you get off, it says you're 79.8 kilos. And you can do some maths and some formula and figure out, and you can say, look, this thing that shouldn't have changed weight in the three seconds between getting off and getting on, my device here says that it is changing weight. So that's part of the measurement error. And that's depending on the device that you're using, you know, it's going to have a certain amount of measurement error. Mostly in our caper, though, the error comes from the patient. So I get someone to do a strength test or you ask someone how they're feeling today or whatever else the case may be, and everything else hasn't changed, but there's going to be some noise in how hard they push on this particular test or how they're feeling right at this moment, independent of anything else that's going wrong with them or whatever else. And there are some ways that you can go about by saying, all right, well, this is how much noise there is in that measure. You know, it, we, our best guess is you're 78 kilos, but given those scales, maybe it could be as much as 79, maybe it could be as much as 77, right? So that's our range, but that's our best kind of guess. So our noise is plus or minus one kilo, let's say. But if those scales were plus or minus 15 kilos now, and you're doing some treatment that claimed to um, make you lose... 15 grams of weight well forget it you are never going to be able to measure it with that tool you know and there might not be very many tools that actually could measure a change that small yeah perfect makes sense um craig did you we took just rod mentioned something about addressing a diabetic dressing i remember you saying to me you'd read um You'd read a paper recently about no, it. Just, it was actually just yesterday. I was just looking over a, a, a paper on diabetic foot ulcers and it was looking at low-level laser therapy for diabetic foot ulcers. And it was a randomized controlled trial. My cursory look at the methods, fine. You know, outcome measures, fine. Randomization, fine, et cetera, et cetera. The stats were fine. And it showed a really big effect for it. And you, oh, yeah, wow. But then the control group was just a, a wet saline dressing. So laser, ther 
low-level laser therapy was extraordinarily effective compared to a saline dressing, which no one uses clinically. So my point in this discussion we had earlier on was the the, the new treatment was compared to something that a, a, a technique that's not used in clinical practice. Now, if they compared that new low-level laser therapy to, say, standard or what's commonly used in wound therapy, it may be no better. It may have actually been worse. We, we, we don't know. So I think that was the, the point of that, is that, that you... you um, I'm not sure if you'd call it, how would you respond to something like that, Rod? So. Yeah, so I reckon that comes back. To, well, two things I want to say about that. So, firstly, it had come back to what we were saying before. You know, maybe these people. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. It's all in. You know, let's say they're not doing the payment of the people who make the laser device. They're not trying to sell you a laser device. They haven't fudged their data or anything else, mm-hmm. and they have just sent it off to a statistician. And he goes, "Look at this. This is fantastic." But you as a podiatrist have the domain knowledge to say, mate, no one does, what did you say, wet saline as the yeah. dressing. And this measurement that you had for how much it heals there, I know that the kind of things I normally do get a better outcome than that. Mm. So, again, at the risk mm. of um, the, the example I want to give you here is that we, we all kind of stand up to the holy grail of, you know, a randomized controlled trial and we think that's going to be the thing that, and it is absolutely a randomized controlled trial. There's no getting around this. It is the best way to compare treatment A, treatment B, and whatever else. Unfortunately, in our caper, I don't know about yours, but the, the example you just gave, this is exa- an example of shit treatment A versus shit treatment B. <laughs> and, you know, shit treatment A wins, but basically neither of those are good things to do. They're not going to tell you, you know, what the best thing is to actually do for the patient in front of you. If that outcome, you know, as in your case, I'd say if you Mm. read through that, you're probably going to say, well, look, that low-level laser therapy, that's not a very big effect size in the scheme of things, in terms that matter to me as a podiatrist or to that patient or the government who's potentially paying for it. Actually, but isn't that the problem concerning the government, that 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 kind of data isn't going to be fed into a systematic review and a meta-analysis that policymakers base their decisions on? Yeah, so if – well, you're right, but if they, if they were to do it properly, so if they got some podiatrists who knew the domain correctly, mm. um, then maybe, you know, we would be okay. So, you know, that's – in an ideal world, a systematic review would be we'd have a whole bunch of these things going on because we're never going to be able to do the one randomized controlled trial which gets the 73 different treatments that are available for diabetic foot ulcers, mm. randomizes everybody to them, powers it adequately. So typically what happens is we've got a whole bunch of different fights going on in different places around the world. And, you know, this bloke beat that bloke. And then at another time he fought against this guy, but this guy fought against, and eventually you might be able to pull all of those and put them in. And that's, you know, what these systematic reviews and meta-analyses are. But this is the drama with it is if it's garbage in, it's garbage out. And, you know, you just, you can't polish a turd. Johnny, Johnny Anethis is the guy who talked loads about this. Um, and you've, I'm no doubt you've come across what he was going before. But he reckons a lot of the systematic reviews and meta-analyses that we're doing, you know, we're down to about 3% of them that are actually published that are decent and clinically useful. That's the fault of the journals, um, the reviewers, and probably the supervisors who are telling their students, all right, thing one you've got to do, you've got to go and do a systematic review for me. Um, so... Broadly speaking, you know, everyone's got a theory for 
better than that are cohort studies. So we took a bunch of patients and we found out what happened to them. Okay, it's looking like out of these cohort studies, laser therapy seems to have an effect this size, which seems like rubbish. Wet saline has an effect like this, that seems like rubbish. Rinse, 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 rinse. Hey, there's two competing ones over here. You know, this treatment and this treatment, they seem to have a much bigger effect than all the other ones. Right, now there's the time for us to do a randomized control trial to see which one wins head-to-head on that. And then, in theory, we do a systematic review and a meta-analysis to be able to pull all of those guys in together. Um, but that's typically not how it happens, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, actually, no. So, am I... Oh, sorry. Sorry, go on, Craig. Go on, I was going to say... Uh, oh, sorry. Another potential example here is there's acupuncture. And you... My reading, I don't have a vested interest either way whether it works or doesn't work, but my reading of all the randomized controlled trials is it's probably no better than a placebo. But you've got the supporters of acupuncture using the fallacy of special pleading that, that are randomized controlled trials are not an appropriate way to test an intervention like acupuncture. Um, I just want, how would you respond to that kind of discussion, Rod? Yeah, my reading is probably concurs with yours, but it also gets back to um, what we were saying before about you've got to see how big the effect is mm. in terms that matter to the patient. So uh, let's let's have a crack at that. So, and when I talk to the acupuncture people, they'll tell me that you know the big thing is acupuncture helps with pain. All right, yeah. I know it can probably also fix a heart murmur and girl trouble and all sorts yeah. of other stuff, yeah. but the big thing that it's <laughs> going to fix is pain. So. Um, this was a an awesome paper. Uh, oh, and if if it helps later, if people want any of these papers, I don't know, put them in touch, and I'll send them to you, and we'll pass them on. So with all the yeah. references and whatnot. So what these blokes did, this is um, pain from 2001. They measured pain in the usual way, and this was people who had had pain for a long time for lots of different reasons, and they got some treatment that changed their pain, got it better, got it worse. But also at the very end of the study, the patient was then they went up to him and said, listen, over you know, your intervention today, just tell us on this scale from very much better to very much worse, what do you reckon? And this is what they found. So on our y-axis here, we've got how much their pain changed. So up here at zero, it means obviously it doesn't change. Uh, and the different amounts depend on where your pain started. So if your baseline pain starts out at four, obviously it can't go down by more than four, you know. So depending on if your baseline pain was 9, they had 171 of these poor buggers whose pain was starting out at 9 out of 10. And that's the triangles just here. So the 9 out of 10 guys will say their pain is much improved if you make it better by about 4.5 out of 10, about 50%. Right, just let's bear that in mind for a moment. Here's one of these systematic reviews and meta-analyses. And um, the, the people who like sticking needles into people tell me that um, low back and neck pain, that's it. You know, this is a really good thing to do. So here's, what's that, 48 studies in 8,000 people for neck pain and low back pain. And what did they find? They found that um, immediate, so straight away as you do it, one month later and three months later, the effect size of doing acupuncture versus pretend acupuncture is about a third of a point out of 10, and it's statistically significant. All right, well, that, that seems good. Now, if we actually take that across and do it in terms that matter to a patient, as far as patients are concerned, dropping my pain by a third out of 10 
essentially irrespective of where your pain started off, you think that's no change or minimally worse. Mm. So, yes, it's a real, it's a statistically significant effect. And, you know, you could say, but in, so now we go and look and see how big is the effect and how big is it to the people who matter, the people who are actually doing this to. And my argument would be, well, if the patients say they're no better or maybe a little bit worse, how can you still argue that this is a good thing to get people to spend money on? Yeah. Actually, that's, that's, that's so applicable to so many other things as well. Um, yeah, well, this, this is where I get a bit dirty. So if I can stay on my high horse just for a second, and this is where the big why I really want people who actually treat patients to get more involved in research or at least inform the research or at least know more about it. And I blame people like me, physios who went and got PhDs. So look, and I don't know these guys, so this is my apology if they're there, but here's count them seven PhDs who this is about sticking needles in for pain up in this area of your body. Now you're a rushed clinician and you say, listen, I, I just, I just want to know if this stuff works. I've been hearing heaps about it. Should I go and do a weekend course on it? Should I start doing this in my practice? Oh, look, there's a review in, this is a good journal in, this is in our caper, um, sports and physical therapy. Mm-hmm. What did they do? I don't really understand this, but it looks like they got 12 studies. Okay. Um, and what's it say in here? Now, already, hopefully our alarm bells are going off because we see that this is saying that dry needling immediately is only improving pain by somewhere between just above zero and just below two, but probably it's around about one out of 10. Um, and at four weeks, now we're saying maybe it's a little bit worse, maybe it's up to a bit more too, but again, it's just about one out of 10. But probably because you haven't been taught how to read a forest plot, like most of us, you jump to the conclusion and you say, now these bozos have said, we have a a grade A, whatever the hell a grade A recommendation is, but it sounds pretty good. A grade A recommendation for dry needling compared to sham or placebo for immediate. Well, I, I better go straight out and do one of those weekend courses in it. I mean, and you'd be perfectly entitled to think that that was real. But I guarantee you that either these guys have just got the blinkers on so much or they're not seeing patients every day and genuinely asking them, you know, so what did you think about that? You know, and if, if your patient says to you after you do something, yeah, my pain was six and now it's, oh, I don't know, four and a half, five, five, let's say, basically they're telling you you've made no effect. You know, on your stat sheet, it says you do and your statistician will tell you it does, but that's you ought to be doing something better to get your bang for your buck. It wasn't worth them getting in the car, coming to your place and giving you money to get that sort of a change. Yeah, nice. Um, we've touched on so many so many words and phrases here Rod that were down on my list to talk about um, you know we've talked on the list that we, we, that we, we someone asked what effect sizes were and it, I think it's pretty clear that you hold them in high regard and the, the one thing people should do before they read papers is get a real good grasp of effect sizes is, is that a fair um, sort of summary of the, your uh, sort of uh, thoughts on it yeah absolutely um effect sizes really matter um okay well let's let's have a little bit of a chat about it and we'll go back i just found a couple of slides on measurement error because that sort of comes into it a bit here so maybe if we if indulge me again um, just a second for yeah, that always um right so 
you know, what we said, so this idea of, you know, how much is the noise that we're going to actually be able to find from time A to time B. And so usually you want to find this idea of the minimum, the smallest detectable difference, the change or whatever the noise. And that kind of study is you just take some measure, you do nothing, and then you measure the people again. So let's take, and this is some real data. So we just did time one and time two. And on the y-axis there is how strong people were when we did this. And if you just look at those two populations, to me, it looks like, geez, I don't know if I can tell if one's better than the other. This is all the people at time one at time two. So we've got some going up, some going down. But again, I'm not entirely sure what's happening there. If I have the two group averages, I say, oh, hang on a second, 224 up to 231. And this is for how strong the muscles are in the front of your thigh. And this was actually a study done by this bloke um, who was a physio, used to work at our place along with another one. Stuck in the machine, did a bunch of different things like that. And when we did the maths around this, it turned out that the smallest detectable difference, so that is you just do the test and do it again. The best way to do it was with all the different straps on. There was a bit of an argument going on at our place whether you should put all the straps on or you can get away with just sticking the ones on your legs and not put it on there. Uh, and there was another argument about should this, this pad go up or down your leg. Cut a long story short, the, the absolute least noisy measure for this device, which costs about uh, secondhand or costs you about 30 grand, brand new will cost you about 70 grand. The best measurement has noise of about 20%. Now, not because this machine is noisy. This thing can measure to about 0.01 of a newton metre. It's because this bloke sitting on it can't spit out exactly the same numbers each day. So you do some sort of treatment intervention, time one, time two. To say that your strengthening program worked, you've actually got to get over the hurdle of a 20% difference from time one, time two, before you can say, okay, I'm now confident that something actually happened. So... You know, we went from 224 to 231, but the noise in this case is about 45 newton metres, and that completely swamps uh, that group effect. And this gets so, so this loads of people have thought about this for a long time. You've probably heard about this thing called the normal distribution. Lots of things are normally distributed, not everything, and that's a bit of a trap, but lots of things are. So, you know, height, for example, you know, most people are average height, and as you go further up, there's fewer and fewer people who are really tall or really short. Um, and it just turns out that with this kind of distribution, within one or one standard deviation either way, you've got about two-thirds of people. Go out to two standard deviations, now you've got about 95% of people, three standard deviations, and you're up to more than 99%. So if we've got one population and they're on average like this and they're sort of spread out like that, and we have some other population, we're trying to figure out who's strongest, or maybe this is before and after your treatment effect or whatever the case may be. And if these guys shift way over here somewhere, well, one thing you might say is, look, there's still some of these guys who are in this weaker group who are stronger than some of these guys who are in the stronger group. But on average, these guys are here and these guys are here. So remembering our normal distribution, when population shifts from there to there, one way for us to say how big that difference is is how many standard deviations difference. And in this case, the one I've just shown you is one standard deviation difference. So that's maybe the change that we saw. And this bloke, Cohen, was the first guy to say, look, 
I, I get it that there's a problem with p-values. Maybe we should be starting to think about things in terms of how big the difference is. And he was the first guy who talked about effect sizes and all that this D number is. So this is a Cohen's D. So he originally just proposed three of these. And after then, people have said, all right, well, you know, let's add in some other descriptors for it. And he said, if you move 0.2 of a standard deviation, that's small, up to huge would be two standard deviations. My experience now in my caper is that this um, overestimates effect sizes. I reckon when we see small effect sizes, they're actually trivial. So things that would count as 0.2 of a standard deviation, you go back to the real world and you say, hey, hang on a second. So we come back to our, our example here, 224 up to 231. That's a difference of seven. Seven out of, let's pull those standard deviations, seven out of 10, that'd be 0.7. So Cohen would be saying that's somewhere between a medium and a large effect size. That's one way to think about it. But then we said, okay, but in terms of the noise that we saw, the noise on that device is really large, you know, 45 Newton meters. So maybe it's a medium to large effect, but it's completely swamped by the noise that's going on there. So I don't know that we can entirely trust what's happening with that one. So that's, you know, part A. That's how big the changes we saw. Um, actually, I don't know if you're going to hear. Uh, the, the noise in this is... It's just trying to bring home um, how different the effect size is in terms of what actually matters to different people. Um, so you can find this stuff online if you like. I've forgotten the name of the guy who first did this example. Uh, it if I can forget. But if we think from Jesse Owens up to Usain Bolt, you'd say it's day and night with the 100 metres. You know, they're, they're playing a completely different sport. <clears throat> but if you think about me running 5Ks around the zone here, and these were my times for 14 of these, and I can hand on heart guarantee you that I do not do any training. So my time sits around about a, a wholly unimpressive 27 minutes for 5Ks, but depending on beers or whatever else, it might be as bad as 31-something or on with wind blowing up my clacker. It might be less than 25 minutes or something like that. So the amount of noise just from test to test on me is huge. So if you were saying we're going to do some treatment effect on me, maybe do a training program or something like that, and it's going to improve my time by 1%, let's say, no, let's say 10%. So in my case, you know, 20, let's say 30 minutes, three minutes, I'd have to say that's still, you know, kind of in the realms of noise. 1%, just forget about it. But 1% for these guys, you know, 10% would be one second. 1% would be 0.1. So changing by 0.1, you know, you're going to be shifting in essence in the order of, well, what's that going to be? That's at least a couple of Olympic cycles. So 1% change for these guys is a massive effect and they'd probably be willing to undergo some sort of training program or something that did an effect like that. 1% effect for me, it's going to take an awful lot of convincing before I'd be thinking of that, you know, this is a realistic thing for me to, to be able to do. Another example that comes up in our case a lot. Oh, did you hear that sound? Yeah. What was that? Right. That was um, Jesse Owens up to Usain Bolt. Let's do it again. 
So that's as if you'd ran all of the Olympic winners from Jesse Owens to Usain Bolt. The first one crossing the, the finish line is Usain Bolt. The last one is Jesse Owens. Here's how big the difference is. That's it. So that's from 1936 to 2012. That's the difference we're talking. So that's when I was saying, you know, you need to think of the effect size in terms that it matters to the person that you're doing this to. So for those guys, a half a percent is probably a big deal. For this palooka, we're going to need to think about a 20% improvement before you'd say it actually matters. Um, yeah, so that, that was that example before. This is my last one because this one, um, all right, so I've got these uh, twin robots that I keep hostage in my basement and it just so turns out that when they do a single leg squat, the amount of knee valgus that they do is exactly the difference which is very statistically significant between left and right of volleyball players or very statistically significant between volleyball and bas basketball players with the amount of knee valgus that's going on. Now, I've made it a lot easier for you because these studies were done with people jumping off a box and landing on the ground. These guys are synchronised and just doing a slow single leg squat. So just um, for beers now, which one of these guys has more knee valgus? Because remember, it's this is P of 0.01. So the difference between the two of these is in the order of about, three, in fact, it's three and a half degrees. So which one of those guys is doing the three and a half degrees more knee valgus, which is highly statistically significant? Jesus, I don't know. Left. I'm, gonna go, I'm going left. Craig, you go right. Yeah, I'll go left. I, I, well, I think the point of the exercise is I can't really tell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we can't see that. I don't know that Vicon can actually measure that. Um, and I certainly can't see it. I can definitely not see it with the naked eye. So, you know, putting it back in the context of, well, how am I going to do this in the clinic? So the next time you read a paper that says, you know, there was a significant increase in knee valgus or a significant increase in knee valgus was associated with patellofemoral pain or whatever the case may be, like, go and find out what the numbers are. And then, you know, do you reckon I could see that? Can I influence that? Can I change that? how much these guys are robots, so they're able to reproduce that every time you get your patients to do a squat 10 times. Do you reckon they're going to be able to do it exactly the same every time? Mm. Yeah. Um, <coughs> Rod, you, we had a few other things on the list that you've touched on where I want to come back to because we've talked about a bit about p-values there and you've already yep. touched on... Um, you know, that they're not magical. And one of your videos that I watched on YouTube a while ago was, was a bit of a tongue-in-cheek entitled how you can use a p-value to make it say whatever you want about your research, which, uh, which I thought was great. Yeah. And I, I was reading the Sander Greenland paper um, on how statistical tests are misinterpreted, whether it be sample size, power, p-values. Maybe we'll talk about all of these, but can we start on p-values? Where, where are we at with p-values? Because I read that some... Some journals are rejecting papers now that uh, include p-values. Um, yep. Yeah, so there's a bit of a push, and I get it because they've been just really badly used, really badly interpreted, but the idea that they're tossing people out who are just doing p-values, I think that's gone too far the other way. Um, look, and this this is our fault again because... The answer almost always is it depends. You know, does 